Hello and welcome to Bend the Knee, a Song of Ice and Fire podcast. I am Sir Jimmy of House Nuts, and welcome to our Song of Ice and Fire book club. Today we are into A Storm of Swords, Catlin 2, and you may be wondering, well, where, where's Matt? Where's Sir Matt? He's, he's not here. Uh, you know, the, the Bud Knight, the Lord of the White Castle, is absent. Unfortunately, uh, Matt did have a little bit of an issue. Uh, he failed a steroid test. And here at the Bend the Knee Agency, we take this very seriously, uh, performance-enhancing drugs. He was podcasting so hard, he felt like he had to push himself. I, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's Matt's birthday. Uh, he, he went to visit some family. I told him, hey, big guy, you got the week off. I gave him the week off because, you know, I'm a, I'm a nice guy. And uh, I had to call in the reserve. I had to call the banners for a, a replacement last second. And that is our good friend, Joanna, who was actually on a couple episodes ago. Joanna, thank you so much for being here. And how are you? Hey, I'm happy to be here and I'm doing great. Excited to talk about Catelyn's chapter. Awesome. Yes, I uh, I know that you just reread A Feast for Crows, but obviously before that you had uh, reread A Storm of Swords for the first time in like 10 years. So I kind of wanted to get your, uh, you know, elevator thoughts about how it was revisiting A Storm of Swords 10 years later. Oh, it was amazing. Um, I had forgotten how much happened in that book. <laughs> so I think a lot of people talk about that, that so much happens in that third book. And it's so true. There are so many things that happen. Um, and I just think, yeah, it was just an incredible experience overall. I just, I love all the books. What can I say? Huge fan. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, I figured it'd be a great time to bring you on. And while Matt was out, because since you had read this book recently, but for those who are, aren't acquainted, maybe didn't hear the episode we talked about, A Feast for Crows, uh, can you tell people, you know, where you're at on the internet when, what you're, what you're doing over there on the YouTubes? Oh, um, so aside from, let's see. So yes, I'm in the middle of still of my reread of A Song of Ice and Fire. So um, I'm hoping to read uh, Dance with Dragons uh, coming up this next month. And aside from that, I'm just reading a whole bunch of other stuff on the side as well. Like hoping to get to some GGK, um, just started Long Price Quartet. And so some other fantasy going on, but um, thoroughly enjoying the A Song of Ice and Fire reread along among other things. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, Joanna, you cover all types of fantasy stuff on your channel. You do a lot of, uh, kind of video essay type things, which I always really appreciate. And me and you have chatted about a lot of different fantasy. You're actually, you know, reading long price quartet, which is by Daniel Abraham, who was one of George R. R. Martin's assistants. But whenever we talk about fantasy, it always seems like we come back to a song of ice and fire. And you and I just say, you know, out of all these hundreds of books that we read, it's it's still kind of the best, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's really shaped my aesthetic, I think, when it comes to fantasy. Because even though, uh, like Long Price Quartet, I've only read the first book in that. And I loved it so, so, so much. And even though I think I told you, it's not the same as A Song of Ice and Fire. I mean, it's a Japanese-inspired fantasy story. And it's much more small scale, much more contained so far. But it still has certain elements, I think, that come from my love of A Song of Ice and Fire, multiple point of view. We have characters who are old, characters who are young, different class systems, um, and, you know, just beautiful exploration of setting. And so all these things, like, I, I feel like so much has been shaped from my love of this particular series. Yeah, I mean, same here. And I think the fantasy genre also was shaped by this series. And one of the things that I love to see in a book is watching people 
blunder and and make stupid decisions because they're following their heart. And there is no better example of that than this chapter today, which is Catelyn 2 in A Storm of Swords. Last week, we were with Arya Stark, where she finally says her name after such a very long time. And then we jump directly to her mother, Catelyn. Uh, obviously, Catelyn earlier in this book released Jaime as a prisoner, which is not the most popular decision, I would say. I would say that's the first big blunder of A Storm of Swords in, in maybe, the, maybe the second in the Stark campaign. I think taking Tyrion hostage probably one of you know the entire battle and him being freed and all of that stuff that was a pretty big blunder but releasing jamie certainly has to be up there as well but funny enough cat catlin too has the bigger blunder and it's not her who makes it uh just to kind of recap this chapter for those who are reading along or not reading along uh we essentially see rob come back from the West. He has taken the crag. Uh, he, and he's also taken a bride to everyone's disappointment, I think, other than his own. And that is, of course, Jane Westerling. We see uh, Catelyn, who is still kind of under house arrest and, you know, near her father, taking care of him, but really not allowed to move around the castle and is definitely in negative favor with everyone at the camp. So she ends up seeing Rob come back, kind of gets the down low about the situation with the Westernlings. And then we have a really interesting scene, including the Blackfish, who is one of my favorite Tullys, if not my favorite Tully. And then Edmure Tully as well. And his blunder that we're going to talk about whether or not that's actually Edmure's fault, because I think he gets a little bit of a bad rap. But I'm I, I'm a fence sitter on this one. Edmure can go either way for me. Um, but really, this is about Rob's blunder following his heart and also going against not just what is best for the family, but also going against the things that have got him to this point of being King of the North and happens to be one of those things is keeping your wolf close. And that, uh, that has massive repercussions in my opinion, in the story and his counter examples that we see here when he talks about the fact that Rick and, and Bran weren't saved from their wolves is actually misinformation. That's not exactly what happened. And we find out that him trusting Theon not to harm his brothers actually was correct. Theon just found a different way of going about it, uh, you know, which was obviously the sham up in Winterfell. Uh, but Joanna, I would love to hear your thoughts overall on this chapter. And, and, you know, if you want to expand outside of just this chapter and talk about Jane Westerling or Catelyn, uh, I would love to hear it. Oh, sure. So I love, by the way, that you said um, tactical blunders, because I actually wrote in my notes, tactical errors of the heart, <laughs> or <laughs> yes, tactical, right. tactical errors from the heart. Mm -hmm. um, but I like the word blunder better, because I think that's very accurate to what's happening here. Um, I, I love the way this chapter opens, I have to say, I love this whole chapter, but especially yeah. how it opens, because I feel like we get like this dark tone established with, of course, Catelyn and everything she's processing, believing that Bran and Rickon are dead and uh, knowing that she's not, you know, her decision is not well received among the people of River, uh, River Run, but also that her father is sick, dying, delirious. And, um, and you know, that Edmure hasn't even come back to talk with her. So there are just so many things established right at the beginning that just seem like rather hopeless. And it seems like George R. R. Martin does this great job of alternating these hopeless like observations and with these like moments of like, but Rob will listen to me, but Rob is my son, but Rob is not Edmure. And she's just trying to hold on to hope that she hasn't lost like a third son is how she puts it. <laughs> mm, yeah. So what did you think about that? Like how the tension is building up at the beginning? 
Well, yeah. And, you know, we get our own heads and I think this is actually pretty realistic when you're in a stressful situation and you're kind of waiting to, to see how someone's going to react to something that you messed up. You start to say, OK, well, they're going to say this. And when they say that, I'm going to say this. So she's going through the motions in her brain and she is trusting that Rob isn't Edmure and that Rob will forgive her. And the, the crazy thing about this chapter is the relief that I felt when reading when Rob said, I do forgive you, mother. But then he follows it up with, but I have some I also have something to tell you and to see how quickly this shifts. But also <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit ironic because she's being forgiven for her her emotional blunder. And <laughs> she can't believe Rob was so stupid to make his. And I don't know if she ever really makes that connection here. Like she's so close to it. She like bucks up against it, but she's never willing to say, you know, this, you know, this is fair because I also did this. I think she even says like he, he's pointing out subtly. He's pointing out the fact that I also did something like this, but it doesn't feel like mm -hmm. she ever puts them on the same level, um, which I guess we could we could talk about. Wh wh which do you think is the worst blunder here? Uh, Rob oh. going against the Frey wedding or Catelyn releasing Jamie? Oh, that's such a good question. That's such a good question. Because both of them are ob obviously have huge repercussions for the war. Mm -hmm. And I think in her mind, like the way that I was reading the chapter, um, I just want to say even leading up to when he tells her that, like there are so many red flags that I loved <laughs> in this chapter. Um, so like things like seeing the, the phrase stomp on the banner. <laughs> yes. All that symbolism is you know? huge. Yes. yes. There are so many like red flags. Oh, I don't, I don't see gray wool or gray, gray wind. And <laughs> like mm. so many little things leading up to that moment that, ah, it's just, I think it was just so well set up as far as like the red flag, something is more, more is going to happen. But um, I think it's interesting too, because like I said, like what I was going to say is that as I was reading it, I was reading it more from her perspective of like her concern, it seems like was more about will my son forgive me? Will my son embrace me? Will I still have a son? You know, will I lose a third son? So it's more about like the family loyalty seems to be more of a concern of hers rather than the losing the war. I mean, to her, she could care less, it seemed to me, about her son being king or about the war. It was like just about getting her daughters back. And so it yeah. seemed like she felt fairly resolved about that decision of releasing Jamie she didn't seem to judge herself as harshly as the other men. It was more just about wanting Rob to understand that. But then yeah. as soon as Rob reveals to her <laughs> that he he made a huge mistake and it it's like two things in one, right? It's um, going against the oath, against the phrase, not only that, but also taking a bride from a lesser house, like yes. double insult to injury. Yes. Uh, and knowing how the phrase are going to receive that and knowing how that's going to disadvantage them in the war at large. And suddenly it seems like the way she's judging Rob's blunder is more about this whole war and how it's just going to totally mess up everything. Whereas I don't feel like she was thinking about her releasing Jamie as a tactical error for the war at large. Yeah, Would you say I, that's accurate? Yeah, I would say that is accurate. I mean, Rob not only... <laughs> turn the phrase against him, but it, but lost a, a backing power. And whenever they're like, well, what's the crag offering? And he's like, I don't know, like six men and or 12 men and six knights or a couple dozen men or something like that. And I'm like, oh my God, Rob, you know, this chapter is the red wedding. 
But how about that? This is this chapter is the prologue to the Red Wedding. You you don't get the Red Wedding without this chapter. So like when people experience the Red Wedding, I always tell them to come back to Catlin too. Come back to Catlin too and watch it unfold in front of your very eyes. It is miserable. I I without a doubt think Rob is the bigger blunder here. I think uh, even even though releasing Jamie was was not good. <laughs> I, I would yeah. I would definitely say that was a blunder. Uh, but I could see why she did it. Whereas with Rob Stark, the whole question is, you know, he's young. He's still young. And that's the thing. He's supposed to be a king and he's in this position of power. And I think Gurm is poking a little bit at the fact that, you know, in, in a medieval time, we're putting this kind of responsibility on a grown man. And I'm using air quotes of 16. Yeah, guys, I was an idiot until last year, you know, and I'm 32. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, uh, I'm telling you, you know, it's, it's no wonder that Rob made this blunder. I'm not trying to come too hard, uh, you know, come down hard on the man, but, or the boy, I would say, but it, you know, he's 16. What else do you expect? And she even says, Oh, look how a grown man. He looks so regal. He looks like a King. He's wearing his crown, which is the crown we'll see on the wolf's head after the red wedding. And, you know, these little things, when you know, it's coming, it's just like, yeah, I can't really blame Rob. This is probably what a 60 year old would do, especially for the fact that Jane was there with him tending to his wound in her bed when he gets news of Rick on and Bran, which, which is devastating. And when I read that, I say, Ooh, Jane Westerling knew what she was doing, but I, I don't actually think Jane Westerling knew what she was doing. I think it was definitely her mother. Would you agree with that? Oh, 100%. <laughs> Especially having read A Feast for Crows or reading on in the yes. series. like You get the impression that the mother um, had an agenda. And I think Jane really did love Rob. Uh, yeah. And to her way of comforting him did put him in a place where he felt like he had to do the honorable thing. And I felt like that was almost an echo of like, okay, you're... You're certainly Ned's son. <laughs> that, that is correct. Like he did something that was dishonorable, but he's trying to do the right thing by the honor of this person. And, and really what it comes down to is, you know, he didn't really want to marry the, the, the fray clearly. So I think he's willing to turn a blind eye to that dishonoring. Um, and speaking of dishonoring, I want to point this out to all, all the listeners out there. And, and I thought this was a wild thing. And me and Joanna were talking a little bit before we hit record, but the events of Rob marrying Jane actually happen in a clash of Kings, not on page, but by the timeline. Cause now remember, you know, this has been a big trek back where Rob is coming back from the West and we're seeing him now, but you know, he was off doing things while the story was moving. So the way the timeline works is towards the end of a clash of Kings, Arya is still in Harrenhal and she hears Elmar Frey say that my family has been dishonored. I am not, I'm no longer going to marry the princess, which we know Elmar is actually talking probably about Arya who is sitting right next to him and he doesn't know, which is funny, but the dishonoring that he's talking about in clash of Kings is the fact that Jane Westerling and Rob were married and someone sent a Raven. I love the way George handles the timeline. I love the fact that people are doing things off screen. Like they really are moving around, but also the way information travels in Westeros. This is like the best example of it. There's actually, you know, that restrictor plate on how we get information, which does feel super foreign to us now in the instant gratification age, but this is how it worked. You know, it might take, take a while to find out. And we see that a lot whenever we talk about, um, Danny. Danny is always six months behind the Westeros best news. Uh, she's, you know, she's way out there. But <laughs> this, it's just crazy to think about that Rob was doing all the stuff with Jane. You know, he was getting busy and it was Clash of Kings. 
Yeah, that's wild. I just think that that's brilliant the way he signals to the reader, but not without being um, too overt about it. And it's interesting, by the way, that you say that this chapter is like the prologue to the Red Wedding, because that's another thing I was thinking about when I started this chapter was about how it's described as like cold and gray and this yes. endless rain. And I'm thinking that's exactly what it, even though we call it the Red Wedding, that's what the Red Wedding atmosphere was like. It was just so that's cold and gray and rainy. Well, yeah, and you're 100 percent right. And you know what? What is gray? Stones, Lady Stoneheart. I <gasps> mean, the, the the gray imagery in Catelyn's chapters, which, <laughs> by the way, two times in the first paragraphs, we 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 see the word gray, um, whether it's describing the direwolf or the outside, the cold gray downpour. Th this is all on purpose. There is a lot of foreshadowing for Catelyn uh, in what she ends up becoming. And remember, she gets pulled out of a cold creek. Um, yes. And so, so something something else about Catelyn that I find interesting is because like I was saying before, it seemed like, especially with releasing Jamie with, um, it seems like her, uh, her agenda was totally on, I want my daughters back at all costs. Like she's even relieved at the beginning of the chapter that I think, I think it's Edmund and his men or that they come back without finding Jamie. Uh, yeah. It's like a relief to her that they didn't catch him. They didn't capture him. So, I mean, she doesn't really want that. She doesn't want even though she knows people will judge her harshly for it. She doesn't want, she wants Jamie to succeed at this point. And yeah. yet as much as that seems to be her number one motivation, her number one aim, I wrote down this one quote where she tells Rob uh, and she's, and she's speaking specifically to what's happening in Winterfell with, you know, what they're thinking is happening with, um, uh, with, uh, I just lost his name, Theon, with Theon. Uh, she says, it is too late for ifs and too late for rescues. All that remains is vengeance. And I think that that's the moment where I felt like, whoa, suddenly we're on this vengeance path. And I feel like her character is starting to darken. I don't know. Maybe another foreshadowing. Yeah, without a doubt. I mean, the things that Catelyn goes through. And, and you know what I love about this is it would be very easy for George to kind of cash this out and say, hey, this is a sympathetic mo mother has lost a lot of things. But she remains a very nuanced character through this because there's even a part in this chapter where Rob says there were six direwolf pups, mom. John had one. Yes. And you're, it's just a little reminder. Yeah, Catelyn wasn't too nice to Jon Snow, was she? Um and, and her cheering for Jamie, you know, for all intents and purposes, is kind of an, a, a frustrating moment to me, even though I can understand her motivations, because it is it is part of the blunders that the Starks are making. Um, oh, gosh. Uh, Catelyn is one of the best characters. I think there's so much motherly uh, intuition that is put into these chapters, into this character. And if, if say one thing for George R. R. Martin, say that he writes phenomenal parents. Uh, maybe they're not good parents, but but he writes good parents and i have to know what happened to him as a, a as a kid in his house because <laughs> he, yeah. he writes this dysfunctional family broken relationship thing while still maintaining an undercurrent of like love and attachment that that honestly I've, I've not really seen in many other books yeah no absolutely and i feel her conflict as a mother because on the one hand she wants her son to be strong she wants him to rise up to the role of being king and not be bullied around and at the same time um i feel like she still tries to influence him. She still says, oh my goodness, please, <laughs> please do not, you know, you need to keep gray wind near you, for example. And you need to listen to my advice. You know, you need to send these Westerlings away or, you know, this person 
um, Westerling on a task. You know, just she's trying to assert herself and she doesn't hold back. She's strong with him. But at the same time, she wants him to rise up to being a king. So it's kind of like that. She's in an interesting balance. And I think that the way he writes her perspective in that is so convincing to me. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Catelyn's definitely one of his best characters, even though she can be insanely frustrating. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I kind of called back to the fact that this was being built on in Clash of Kings. And I was shocked to see that in a Game of Thrones, book one is when we first hear about Jane Westerling's dad being taken a, a prisoner. Uh, that's okay. all the way back in, in <laughs> book one, folks. So he was absolutely building towards this the whole time. Uh, Rob captures him in the Battle of the Whispering Wood and is held at Seaguard. So from book one, these bricks were being laid. And I just have so much appreciation uh, for that. Along with that, we also continue to see our, our lords, right? We even get a, a Lord Manderly shout out. And they call him the fattest man in the realm, which I thought was very rude. Um, they shouldn't be so mean to Manderly. He's awesome. And we also see Karstark and he's furious because his sons were killed by Jamie. And it's very hard to not for me to not side with Karstark uh, on this argument because and, you know, maybe maybe I'm wrong because his sons are gone and Catelyn is trying to save her two daughters or she thinks she is. Um that, that's a that's a very tough one that, that's a tough one to pick a side on yeah that one is tough i mean like you said he writes parents so well like it's understandable yeah. <laughs> like you can understand where people are coming from um yes. yeah it's, it's wild i think the the line she tells him is something along the lines of uh i think getting getting the kingslayer uh won't bring back your sons or something but they might help to bring back my daughters something along those lines yeah. yes Yes. And while they're, they're fighting back and forth, uh, Rob ends up saying love's not always wise. I've learned it can lead us to great folly, but we follow our hearts wherever they take us. Don't we mother? Don't we mother? <laughs> yeah, and she thinks, is that what I did? And then she says, if my heart led me into folly, I would gladly make whatever amends I can to Lord Karstark and yourself. Um, and then Lord Rickard says, Will your amends warm Torin and Eddard in the cold graves where the Kingslayer laid them? And then he shoulders and walks out. I mean, that I don't know. You, you know, we're talking about Catelyn being being a parent, but we also have a parent here. And we also have Jane's mom being introduced, uh, Sabelle. And then we also have Catelyn's dad at the beginning. Like, there are so much family ties here. And man, how does I don't know how George keeps it all straight, but one of the things I wanted to note, and it kind of connects kind of an end point of the chapter and a beginning point of the chapter uh, is in the second paragraph of the, this chapter it says her father was growing weaker and more delirious with every passing day, waking only to mutter tansy and beg for forgiveness. Now this has a whole other meaning, which we'll talk about in the future chapters. But the one thing I wanted to talk about is that tansy is used a lot of times for abortion, right? To, to kind of make a pregnancy go South. Well, we also hear about Lady Sabelle, and she is supposedly giving Jane all these herbs and things that are going to help her become fertile so she can give heirs to rob the king because now she's a queen. But we know with later context that Sabelle was working with Lord Tywin the entire time, and she was actually giving her potentially tansy. So tansy is laid out in the second paragraph in this thing, and we, little do we know, we're pretty sure Sabelle is administering it to her daughter to make sure that Jane doesn't get pregnant. 
What? That's crazy. So do you think that that was a direct, uh, that that was kind of like a hint at the beginning? Yes. Oh, wow. A hundred percent. And then we know, you know, Catelyn's like Tansy. Who's Tansy? He must have cheated on mother, blah, 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 blah. But we, we end up, you know, finding out that Liza was given Tansy to most likely abort a child that she was going to have with Peter Baelish. Uh, or I believe it's Peter Baelish. I'd have to double check mm -hmm. that. Uh, but so, so we know Tansy, Tansy is actually central to this whole book uh, because it, it makes uh, Catelyn dive into who her father was to her, what, what, who was he really? Because none of us really know our parents until they're later in their life. I feel, I feel like I've learned that lesson recently and it's not usually a fun lesson. Uh, so Catelyn going through the idea that her father may have been unfaithful or, or whatever else is, is a piece of this story all the way through till cat, uh, to really till, uh, Hoster's end. Um, so I do think it was a, a hint. Tansy gets a whole lot of page time <laughs> in a storm of swords yeah. and Martin uses it to great, great effect do you believe jane westerling is pregnant by the way um i think we talked about this in our last discussion is it okay to go there to yeah sure yeah. go further into feast yeah yeah well, this is a full reread podcast we do yeah. it all so feel free yeah well I, I i did notice it was interesting how she talks about like you know she's very thin but her hips are good for <laughs> having yeah. children yes um but i think was it there was a reason why I was skeptical she might be pregnant and I think it was because of the timeline because of um it was because of of Edmer and the Frey girl that he got pregnant the same night as the Red Wedding how she was showing at a certain point in a feast for crows and when Jamie came across Jane Westerling she wasn't pregnant at that point so she might have been show she probably would have been showing at that point is what I would imagine given the mm -hmm. timeline, given that um, Edmer's wife was showing at that point. So that's the only reason I, I but I always wondered that though. And I remember the first time I read the series, I always wondered, but maybe she's pregnant. It's always been a, it's always been a curiosity for me. Well, yeah, it's been a curiosity for the fandom for, for almost a decade now. And one of the big things that people point to is the fact that she's described differently here than she is in a feast for crows. And while that does seem like the silver bullet, uh, George has come out and say, said that that was a mistake. So that, that bothers oh. me. Yes. The, the, the change of description, he said that was, but you know, I don't know if that's true or not. Uh, I read it on the internet. So yeah, <laughs> who knows? Yes. There's been multiple uh, scenarios where people have said that that this was just a, an oversight by George, which it very well could be. But it also doesn't mean that he can't run with it because the, even the way that she's described by her hair, though, not just her hips, um, doesn't just it just doesn't sound like Jane. And I do think that Jane has more of a part to play in the story. We know we're going to see her in the Winds of Winter that that was pretty much confirmed by uh, Gurm at one point. But for her actually grieving Rob. And her, she's going out on this, um, like basically this caravan, right? When and the the idea is that it's going to be attacked by the Brotherhood without banners because Tom Seven Streams is actually in River One in a feast for crows, and he's giving information to the Brotherhood without banners. But I just feel like her tearing up her fine clothes and showing grieving in a feast for crows. I, I, I would almost uh, be sad if, if she doesn't birth Rob's heir. Like that feels like something that could be potentially massive. And I think it would also be, be more entertaining than if she were just to die in the caravan. Um, but who knows? I guess 
we'll have to wait for wins like everything else. <laughs> yes. Yes. I've always wondered about what would happen with her. Yeah. She's definitely one of the biggest characters that, um, you know, she's a side character, but she gets overlooked. I think whenever people are talking about what's going to happen in wins or a dream for spring, I think people kind of forget about her. And, you know, if I had to put money on it, I would say she is pregnant, uh, mainly just because I think it's very striking that whenever Catelyn sees her, she says slender, but with good hips, she should have no trouble bearing children at least. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a, a uh, clue, I would say. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, there's the part where we kind of talked about how the Westerlings are a step down from the phrase and uh, Rob bristled at that. The Westerlings are better blood than the phrase. They're an ancient line descending from the first men. The kings of the rock sometimes wed Westerlings before the conquest. And there was another Jane Westerling who was queen to King Magor 300 years ago. So a little bit of fire and blood. Uh, reference. Oh, OK. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, this is this is mentioned in fire and blood. And I just. You know, this is the kind of stuff I live for. The fact that George had some of this ancient history actually in his head as he's writing these Catlin chapters back in 2000, 2001 or 2002 is um, it's bananas. It's crazy. Yeah. But I love, by the way, like, you know, talking about how I was saying earlier, there's like these red flags up until the conversation that Rob and uh, and Catlin have, how she notices the Westerlings. And her first thought is, Prisoners? You know, why would Rob bring Catholics yes. to <laughs> <laughs> And it's like, oh nope, your boy, your boy made a mistake. Your your future in-laws are coming, you know. <laughs> Goodness. Oh um, man. I also really quickly want to mention too, is like uh it I feel like it's always worth mentioning just the way that she's treated, the way Catelyn is treated, because they say, Oh, it's a woman's weakness. They keep the people who are softer to her. They blame her for Jamie's decision is like, oh, it's it's an error of being a woman. <laughs> yeah. So I think that's interesting because obviously, well, of course, King you know, Rob's in a position of authority as king, but they're not going to necessarily say anything about that, about gender regarding mm. his blender. Yeah. And I think this is George kind of poking fun at that idea and twisting the knife because she's more capable than Karstark or really anybody uh she, she's probably one of the better mind even though she did make a blunder i don't think it's because uh she's a woman i mean you could look at edard edard's not a woman and and he made the blunt the fur very first oh blunder, yeah probably. yeah so i think that's george poking a little bit of fun and i totally uh, agree and i yeah. love that i yeah. totally agree with you about that yeah um i guess the other th another thing too to point out is like you know she's just the, again, the way she, he builds up the tension in this whole entire uh, this whole entire chapter, and how he talks about like you were talking about that line where Rob is talking about um, that about love is not always wise, and uh, that I've learned that it can lead us to the great to great folly. But if we follow our hearts wherever they take us, don't we? Or we follow our hearts wherever they take us, don't we, mother? And so it seems like things are softening a little bit. And then like uh, Mormont tells her that she would have done the same thing if her daughters had been taken by Cersei Lannister. Mm -hmm. And Great John is optimistic that Rob can get the Kingslayer again. And then, of course, uh, uh, the Blackfish picks her up and gives her this big hug. So it's like there's all these little reassurances leading to the big blow, I think. Yeah, it <laughs> takes the wind off our sails. Yes. Yeah. I just, I don't know. I just think it's amazing the way he does these little things, these subtle little shifts in tone and shifts in emotion. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. And then like you slowly see everything start to unravel as she gets the bad news. And then bad news just continuously piles up. Obviously, we talked about Jane Westerling, but uh, you know, where is Grey Wynn? Catelyn immediately asked, talk about a red flag. And I hate Rob's answer here. He says, a hall is no place for a wolf. He gets restless, you've seen, growling and snapping. I should have never taken him into battle with me. He's killed too many men to fear them now. Jane's anxious around him, and he terrifies her mother. And Catelyn thinks internally, and there's the heart of it, Caitlin thought. He is part of you, Rob. To fear him is to fear you. I am not a wolf, no matter what they call me. Dumb. Rob, you're dumb. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me so mad. Um, Grey, Will, Grey Wind killed a man at the crag, another at Ashmark, and six or seven at Oxcross. If you had seen, I saw Bran's wolf tear out a man's throat at Winterfell, she said, she said sharply, and loved him for it. And I thought that that was just like, you wouldn't talk about, you know, vengeance and that ruthlessness. It's like, oh, make no, mince no words about it. Like, I, I am willing to rip out people's throats. But when Rob says, I am not a wolf, no matter what they call me, I'm like, oh, you've lost the plot. Like, you've completely lost your mind. And you do now have this kingly. Oh, God. Oh, so and I think it, I think Catelyn was wise in a way yes. to, to speak because she she gained more authority in her voice in the way she spoke to him and the way she said that, um, you know, it's too late for ifs or whatever. She just tells him you need to stand up and be a king, basically. I think she did the right thing. I think she knew she knows her son and she knows yes. it seems to me like even previous to this chapter, there are instances where and even after this chapter, there are probably instances when Rob is feeling discouraged and she knows how to build him up or he's getting a little bit discouraged here and she knows how to like, no, I need to you need to be stronger. She knows how to push when she needs to push. She knows how to be soft when she needs to be soft. She knows her son. She knows her children. So I yeah. think she's just a brilliant mother in that regard, despite blunders. I mean, she's obviously fallible. <laughs> I think to this point, that has been the the song and dance between Rob and Catelyn for sure. And they've been through so much together. They've been out, you know, on the trail uh, and going to war. And one of Rob's reasons why he wants Grey Wynn not around is because he bears his teeth every time Sir Rolf comes near him, which is Jane's uncle. And <laughs> she, a chill went through her. Send Sir Rolf away at once. And then, you know, Rob goes through why he can't do that. And she says, Rob, she stopped and held his arm. I told you once to keep Theon Greyjoy close and you did not listen. Listen now. Send this man away. I am not saying you must banish him, but find some task that requires a man of courage, some honorable duty. What it matters, it does not matter what it is, but do not keep him near you and then rob says should i have gray wind sniff all my nights and it's like you brat you 16 year old brat stop it listen to your mother um and then she says any man gray wind gray wind mislikes is a man i do not want close to you the these wolves are more than wolves rob you must know that i think perhaps the gods sent them to us your father's gods the old gods of the north five wolf pups rob for five stark children. And that's where Rob corrects her and says six. You forgot about John, which I, all right, Rob, you're back in my good graces. But I, I love that. You know, maybe the God sent them your father's gods, because we've talked about the significance of the direwolves coming below the wall at this exact moment. I mean, this has been a big question in the series really is like, why were they there? Um, that is an unseen circumstance. Obviously, we think that a winner is kind of pushing them down as the others come in. Um, but I just love anytime we get any mention of the old, old gods here. But uh, 
Rob, uh, Rob doesn't trust his mom anymore. And he doesn't. Yeah. Well, he did listen, but then he said something. What did he say to her? He said, I'll do it for you, mother, because I know you've been through a lot. Something along those lines. I'm sorry, I butcher, <laughs> not quoting him correctly, but. Yeah, she, so he says, I will send some, uh, I will find some duty for Sir Rolf, some pretext to send him away, not because of his smell, but to ease your mind. You have suffered enough. And he's exactly. basically putting it up to the fact that Rickon and Bran, right, are gone. Yes. And, but, but you can feel the bartering is, it, it, she's completely out of favor at this point. Like, Rob is becoming his own. He knows better. He's a married man. Yeah. I mean, it, it it's an interesting, like you said, song and dance. I felt like that line was slightly patronizing. Yes. Um, but at the same time, he wanted her approval with the Westerlings. He wanted her to back him up. So Absolutely. even though he is his own, he's coming into his own in a lot of ways. I think he realizes he still needs her. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I, I'm being pretty hard on Rob this chapter, but, you know, it's just the, some of the things that he said. And you can tell, you know, he's kind of forgetting who he is and what, what made him king of the north. Uh, we got to talk about kind of the last section of this chapter because it's a point of contention among the fandom. And that is Edmure. Is he an idiot or is he not to blame because he was restricted information? Joanna, what's your take? Oh, I don't know the answer to this. I was called out about that too, because I was uh, talking about it on a discord and some people were like, well, you know, that was Rob's fault. If you're as a leader, you need to let all your Lords or everyone know, you know, know what your plan is. Um, I don't know what the answer is. Was there a good reason not to tell Edmure the plan? Obviously it would have benefited everything, but it's just, Regardless of whether Rob was in the right or wrong about that decision, I just love that whole section because oh, I just good. love the fact that um, that George R. R. Martin gives us some room to speculate what else could have happened, like how this could have gone totally differently than it did. Everything that happened yeah. at the end of A Clash of Kings could have been completely changed based on one error. <laughs> it's wild. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. I mean, th and that's the thing. That's what makes this feel real when we read it. And you have people doing stuff off screen. You have uh, tactical advantages that were thrown away. And for me, Edmure, if, if there, there's part of me that says it, it is on Rob, but a need to know basis is like being able to, uh, you know, give information to your generals and to the people in the field. You have to know what people can and cannot handle. And Edmure is thought about many times by Catelyn. Uh, as someone who is kind of trying to get glory, like he almost wants to prove his worth. He kind of wants to be bigger than life itself. And she even says for a men's brother or for glory, she thinks inside and, in, uh, you know, in her head. And Edmure also has a problem with Tom seven streams because he did a song and maybe slept with a girl that he wanted to sleep with. There's like this whole thing. And it feels like Edmure almost takes himself a little bit too serious. And yes. I get that vibe from him. So I think there was a worry maybe of either hurting his pride that he was given this secondary task or that he would just mess up, that he would not follow those orders. I, I, I see both sides of it. So I'm a little bit with you uh, being a fence sitter, but I am going to say that I think Rob made the better decision to not tell him. And the reason why is because Brendan Blackfish backs him up. That's which what I was uncle. thinking. Yes. And if the family knows Edmure, which they do, 
and they agree that he shouldn't have been told, then I'm going to say Rob was listening to his advisors and the people who knew Edmure the best. And I think that he was in the right. And I think Edmure might just be an idiot. <laughs> I, I'm with you on that. Actually, I, I think I side with you more on that idea because um, that was what I was going to say too. And I, I've heard that from other people too, from other readers too, about how Catelyn kind of babies Edmure and that she's being unfair in the way that she perceives him. But she's not alone in perceiving him that way. And even in this chapter, we get the perspective of Blackfish uh, mocking him for like trying to get all the glory and, yes. <laughs> you know, so um, I, you know, I think that that, I think that that would make sense because Blackfish obviously has a great history as being an amazing uh, warrior. So yeah. I would trust him. <laughs> yeah, Blackfish is one of the most capable people that Rob has. Mm -hmm. And if he's saying that he shouldn't have been told, he shouldn't have been told. Obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty, yeah. but who's to say Edmure wouldn't have messed it up anyways? So that's yeah. hard to say. I mean, I, yeah. I do think Edmure is actually a pretty great character, by the way. Like, I really enjoy his place in the story. And then, you know, we get <laughs> we get at the end that he's going to have to marry a fray, which is almost comedic. I mean, yes. it's kind of funny, right? It's like they don't want something. They want someone. And as everyone yes. turns and looks at me and he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it's that. funny. Uh, he, he's a bit of a comic relief, but no, no joke here that he basically ruined the opportunity they had to smash Tywin Lannister. I mean, that it would have been over. Stannis would have been king. Yes. And the other thing I loved in that particular section was um, <laughs> when Catelyn is saying in her head, oh, why, Rob, why couldn't you have fallen into Marjorie's arms or something yes. like that? Of speculating the idea that <laughs> Rob and Marjorie could have been together. Wow. Yeah, and, and even story. said something. Yeah, even said something along the lines like she almost thinks favorably of Marjorie too, which I think is maybe an indicator that like because a lot of people are back and forth like Marjorie, good, bad, which one is it? And I've always kind of give given her the benefit of the doubt. Like I think the Tyrells are opportunist. I think mm -hmm. that they definitely wait and then pick their sides. Uh, I think there's going to be a lot more of that to come actually. And a wind's a winter. I. I I don't think that the siege is going to happen. It storms in. I think that the Tyrells are going to switch camps and go with Griff. Uh, but I, I don't think that they're a bad house. And I certainly don't think Marjorie is anywhere near um, as bad as, you know, a Westerling. Nothing against Jane, but her mom is evil, clearly. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe there's a better family. And also, who doesn't want to lend a Tyrell at Thanksgiving? Come on. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> I also love that whole the whole line about like maybe Grey Wind would like her smell. <laughs> that's what it was. Yeah, that's what it was. Maybe Grey Wind would like the smell of her. That's what the line was. Where I was like, okay, so she sees this favorably. Like she thinks Marjorie's a favorable person. Um, oh man, could you imagine if Marjorie had went with the Starks? That'd have been a steamroll. That'd have been it. I know. I kind of so want the alternate story just for fun. I've met so I've never been a big fan of the what if stuff like a lot of people like like there's whole channels just based on what if I think Marvel even made a show on Disney plus about what if in the Marvel universe the one universe where what if is actually entertaining to me is a song of ice and fire because it comes down to little battle decisions or a conversation not happening and everything is different. And to me, th that's the kind of things because I do like alternate history. Uh, I really like Man in the High Castle by Philip K. Dick. I love that show. I just read the book as well. And just thinking about how thing, how different things would be society, culture, uh, the ruling class or whatever it might be. And A Song of Ice and Fire is just ripe for that type of speculation. I mean, Stannis Baratheon has to be one of the most unlucky dudes ever. Like, <laughs> ever. <laughs> goodness. Yes. Oh. 
Were there any other notes that you had about this chapter or do you think we, we covered it all? Um, I, I feel pretty good about what we covered. I'm sure there's probably more, but I feel pretty good about this. I mean, there's, this was just such a fun chapter to explore again. So I thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. I was glad, uh, glad that I could call the banners and bring in and, you know, house Joanna showed up and we will remember, okay. B bend the knee remembers who helps us out. <laughs> and what they need. So I appreciate you coming on Joanna and uh, Matt will be back next week, folks. So don't worry. He, he will be back from his birthday celebration slash vacation. Uh, and I hope that Matt, if you're listening yet, you had a good time. <laughs> Joanna, tell people where they can find you on the internet. Absolutely. So my channel is Joanna at the handle at Joanna underscore reads. And I'd love to have you um, come find me there and come chat with me in my comment section. Subscribe if you want to subscribe, like my com my videos if you want to like them. Um, happy to have any new viewers there. So thanks. Absolutely. Everyone should go support Joanna. She's one of the most genuine people I've met uh, <laughs> through this crazy fantasy book fandom and always has videos that make me think and sometimes uh, reflect on myself as well. So Joanna, thank you again so very much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, we want to thank you for playing the Game of Thrones. In our next episode, we will be discussing A Storm of Swords. I'm flipping open to the chapter, John, I think two, maybe three. <laughs> Matt, Matt usually does this, folks. Give me a break. But if you like our podcast, don't forget to subscribe, like us, write a review, or leave a comment, or send us a raven at btkcast at gmail.com or bendthekneepodcast.com. We'll see you next time. And remember, winter is coming. Mm -hmm.